Hello and welcome to Willosophy. I'm Will Anderson. Uh, this is my podcast where I ask intelligent people stupid questions to find out the meaning of life or something. Basically, I ask people if they have a philosophy, if they've ever thought about what their philosophy is and how it uh, applies to various uh, aspects of their life. But it's just a general conversation about life. It's not an interview. It's uh, a conversation with people that I know and that I like and that I'm engaged with. And sometimes I'll talk and sometimes they'll talk and sometimes I'll interrupt them. Uh, these are all things that I know I do. So feel free not to give me feedback about that. It's my podcast. Start your own podcast if you want to do it your way. This is my way. Anyway, let's not start aggressively. Uh, thanks for listening. This is a uh, great podcast. This was the original uh, second podcast I did with my old friend, uh, Adam Spencer. We used to do the Triple J Breakfast Show together for people who uh, are not of that vintage or, or never heard that. Uh, we've been getting together a bit recently because Triple J is about to celebrate 40 years on air. So Spencer and I are going to do a shift together on Double J. And so we've been uh, recording some stuff for a documentary and a whole bunch of different things. So uh, January 19, if you have digital radio, uh, we will be on Double J. Uh, we won't be on live that day, unfortunately, because neither of us were available, but uh, we are recording an entire show and uh, we're going to catch up with some old friends. It'll be fun. It'll be really great fun. And it's been, uh, it was great fun to catch up with him about a year ago for this old episode of uh, Willosophy. If you're new to the podcast, basically I started it last year uh, and uh, look, for a myriad of reasons I explained on other episodes, uh, it stopped. So I'm posting all the old episodes and then hopefully in the new year, um, then we'll have brand new episodes. So if you didn't catch this one with Adam Spencer or if you didn't, you're just listening again because you enjoyed it, uh, make sure that you uh, check out Adam's new book, Adam Spencer's Big Book of Numbers. I got it for Christmas from Adam. But it is a really fantastic book and uh, really great gift or just really great if you're fascinated in numbers and maths yourself. So Adam Spencer's Big Book of Numbers, check that out and I uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, January 19, the day I couldn't do the Triple J thing, uh, I couldn't do it because of course I'm recording the last night of my Willuminati tour at the Sydney Opera House. Uh, tickets are on sale for that if you want to come and see me in the concert hall of the Sydney Opera House doing Willuminati, that'd be uh, absolutely fantastic and my free will shows are on sale in Adelaide. Melbourne and Brisbane and as I'm, I'm being poured a glass of champagne as I do this introduction that's a very very nice way to think that I live my life doing my introductions out in the office being poured champagne on a beautiful summer's day anyway I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, I'll talk to you again soon cheers Welcome to episode two of Willosophy. Uh, I'm going to introduce my guest straight away this time because I thought in the first episode I took too long. You did. Uh, see? No, I wanted Even to get I, in. No. This is my thing. I've is been I'm, sitting here for 14 point. This thing goes down to thousandths of a second. Yeah. I thought you'd enjoy that. <laughs> Adam Spencer is my guest. And he's already distracted from this podcast by the mathematics of my recording machine. <laughs> you, could, you could qualify... Drivers in Formula One racing with this recording device. Well, I need that. Thousands. Adam, because of the precision 
of my questions on this podcast. <laughs> it's what people have become used to in mm. the one episode I've already put up. Yeah, yeah and I, I enjoyed all yeah. one hour, seven minutes and 22 seconds of it. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I can even get it more specific yeah. than that if yeah. you need. <laughs> Could really have blown out. Oh, when I re-release the director's edit, <laughs> there is no director's edit. I just put it all up. I, I have to know. Yes. Because um, uh, I'm sure many people listening would have heard Todd's um, quite amazing stories. Did you already have me lined up to go as number two or did you chat with Todd yeah. and at about the eight-minute mark right. of his philosophy when he's explained how one of his good mates from high school was murdered yeah. and another guy he knew from high school was a murderer yeah. and his sister, who was married to the Navy SEAL who killed for a living He'd only just found out was his sister because he used to tape his own parents secretly with a device under the chair and listen back to it when they were out of the house. What I like, uh, well, firstly, before you get to your yes. point, what I like is if, if people didn't hear the first episode, they just got a previously on McLeod's daughters. <laughs> you, you just caught them up That's with right. everything you missed from episode <laughs> so, one. <laughs> everything you'll need yeah. to know to episode, understand episode two. Last week on Arrested Development, and <laughs> was, it, was it about that stage you mm. thought, I know who we need for our second one? Yeah. <laughs> I said, this reminds me a lot of Adam Spencer. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. I was doing the maths on how many kids, and I was like, maths, I'll get Spence on next. Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing, and I did not know a lot of those stories. No. No, I, 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 the, my kind of attitude with it is I want to talk to people and mm-hmm. just hopefully discover things that you can't Google about them and, mm. and, and things that people might not be able to know. So, um, well, I, the first thing that I asked him and the first thing I'm going to ask you is, do you have a mm. philosophy? Is there something – like, you know, he, he talked a lot about, you know – um, stuff that I've forgotten. There was doors. The door, there was notes. The door, the door to life. Yeah. The door to life can be opened, but you have to open it yourself. Yes. You can't just stand there willing it to open. Yes. Yes. Unless it's hospital doors. Mm. They open yeah. by themselves. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there is some exceptions to the rule. We did a talk back recently on uh, my highly successful breakfast radio show in Sydney, and we were talking about, because we'd taken our kids to the Gold Coast for a holiday. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing. Uh, some work up there so Mel has gone and got the girls from school complete surprise I didn't even know that she said we're going somewhere to have some lunch okay put them in the cab and they're going out to lunch and then the girls finally realize we're going to the airport for lunch wow this is the worst part why why would we want a terrible decision everything's expensive yeah the line's really long (laughs) Get Those that. sandwiches have been there all day. Actually, you're going on a plane. Oh, okay. wow. Good. And, the, and I speak to them. I'm in, on the Gold Coast. They're in Sydney at the airport. I speak to them, and they're so excited they can barely speak. And one of them's going, are we going to Disneyland? So eventually go to the Gold Coast. We, they stay in the hotel where I'm doing this show. Uh, it's a pretty good hotel. There's a massive kids' playground. We go to SeaWorld the next day. They come back after that. It's all a complete surprise. I just thought they were going to school. The only thing they can talk to their friends about when they get back was it was unbelievable. In the hotel room, there was this phone. (laughs) You pick up the phone and you'd say, could I please have some chips? And this guy would bring you chips. Right. That was all. No, fucking SeaWorld. Right. Let's fly up to the Gold Coast instead of doing school for the afternoon. We mentioned that on the show and had to talk about when you were a kid, just the prism you'd see things through. On your holidays. Wouldn't it just be great if you could still, to be honest, oh. people who follow my career know there's nothing I enjoy more than being in a hotel room no. after a gig and ordering chips. But if it really works out for you. You will have 24-7 room service anytime you are anywhere in the world. We had people calling in and saying, you know, that uh, 
one guy the elevators. The the only time he ever got in an elevator was when they went on holidays. Uh-huh. Another guy come to Sydney around the time that your automatic opening doors, you were saying like your hospital doors, were first installed in the city. They didn't have them in the country town he was from. Him and his brother spent an hour in the city just walking in and then out <laughs> of this one building, just like they were going through a portal into another dimension and just unable to believe... And there's two security guys just looking at, like, through the security footage going, they're from the country. Yeah. It's okay. Either this is the most elaborate decoy ever, and right. there's another guy at the back with some serious guns and a truck just <laughs> emptying this place, or they're from the country. And my favourite one was a guy who couldn't believe how, when they were on holiday, they were staying at some motor inn, and you could write on a piece of paper the night before, can I have some you know, eggs and toast? And you put that in a box at the door, and overnight... That piece of paper oh, yeah. turned into eggs. Oh. How, you know, like the, the Christian transubstantiation miracle of Christ, the bread actually becomes the body of Christ. My God. Would... The, this piece of paper turned into eggs. I would steal that box. <laughs> I'd be going home, writing things on pieces of paper. It's been an amazing box. It could, you could turn into jam. Yeah. Anything like that. Uh, but my philosophy, uh, I was... I had one in mind, and then today I was at a place where I had to go and buy some stuff and quickly raced into the bathroom, and there was a sign there that said, please do not put paper towels in the urinal. Mm. And I think that's now. That's it? That's That's your new one? Yeah, because what I had was all right, but it wasn't as as compelling as that. I mean, at least they said please. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you go back in a few more weeks, like, we fucking told you. Stop putting them in. Yeah, uh, yeah. We asked nicely last time. It suggests there's a class of people out there for whom they put paper towels in urinals. You can either be polite to them or you can just go the brute force of it is forbidden to put paper towels in this. And obviously, whatever personality type it is appropriate, people have put paper towels in this particular urinal at the um, Sydney Chess Academy in Burwood in Sydney. Those people mm. are more the, hey, let's, you know, Let's establish a link and make you realise that I as a pers- I'm a person too and we're all on this planet together. Well, it's a chess thing, isn't it? <clears throat> They're seeing forward to what the next step uh-huh. might be. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they actually have that forethought of going, don't be angry at them mm. first yeah, time yeah, yeah. because they will then respond with aggression and that's not what we exactly. want in this situation. Just, yeah, exactly. Suddenly they're going to be putting paper yeah. towels everywhere. Yeah. They're going to be pissing on the walls. Exactly. I'm just putting my bishop here, mate. You, right. can, you can have a move now. But my philosophy, I think... Well, no, let, let's sure. just linger on this before sure. we actually get to your sure. philosophy. Because f- from that point of view where you're mm. talking about the two ways that you can sort of uh, tell somebody something, yes. you know, you can sort of demand it of them or mm. that you can ask it of them. Mm. Uh, you're a father of children. Is yes. there is there one of those two approaches that you think works the best? Uh, it, it'd probably go one each way with our two kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> but is that a thing in itself that, like, you know, when you have kids, like, you, you made those kids with the same person, yeah. like, in the same uh, yes. place. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the same ingredients. She's just, She's just here. here in the background. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think she would know. <laughs> you know, and I we mean, made... Right, that's what she told him. We made, we, we <laughs> that's made, the first heckle we've yeah. ever had on the podcast. <laughs> we, well, that's the equivalent of Todd's bombshell. Yeah, and that's well, that, that, this is when you find out you're not the father of your children. Well, well, that, two episodes in, two bombshells. Great podcast, people. Download it. The great one they have when you when they say to a guy, "How many kids have you got?" You say two that I know of. Right. You never hear a woman saying two 
that I know of. You have to be particularly sleepy. There's <laughs> very sleepy. A <laughs> lot more clarity. And when you, we did make two children, and we made one at least, we won't. We. I wasn't specifically going to say um, <laughs> the brown three seater couch. <laughs> I was going to say in this room. Right. Yeah. So oh, so fun. this this space is like a, a space where life was created. Sacred site. So. A sacred site? Have you lobbied the local <laughs> council? Um, <laughs> we with a heritage. Yes, yeah. <laughs> not that old. I'm a, ch- a chance to go around again. I mean, it hasn't been used a lot recently. Nah, sure. It's fallen into a state of disrepair. Sure, sure. But we feel if we could get yeah, a kickstarter yeah, together, yeah. we need someone like Leo Schofield to just take ownership of right. it and, and pay for the upkeep. Yeah. Um, the uh, so I think it probably depends on. Kid by kid as to which responds better to a bit of force or a bit of humanity. And also, you know, some kids, different times, each of them. But with certainly with our two kids, one of them is a little bit more uh, when she does something wrong, is more likely to feel bad that she's done that and feel that she's let herself down and you guys down. And the other one is far more if she does something wrong and you say, uh, that's it, you know, consequences rather than any denial or anything she'll literally say how long as in how many minutes am i on the stairs and with her it's never a matter of what i do or no i didn't or i'm sorry it's you know those episodes she's just one of those people who's like i just do my time you know the laurel i'm just gonna go in i'm gonna do my time it's it's more it's it's more it's more the part it's it's not at the conviction it's more it's it's that bit of the episode of law and order when they go into the room Uh and mccoy is there and they they all go well What's on the table? And you say you're going to go 15 minutes up the stairs. And you kid, 15? 15? I'm not doing 15 on the stairs for that. You know, I'll, I'll do 10. Yeah. Eight for good behaviour. Right. Any more than 10, you know. If, yeah. you, if you, Otherwise, I want to test this in front of a jury of my exactly, peers. Exactly. Are you putting man two on the table? Because if you're not, <laughs> we're out of here. I'll, you know, I'll, so, I'll, uh, I'll take my life. Explain to me what your theories on – I don't mean that specifically, mm. you know, I, but I, but the fact that the two girls are different. Yep. Like, where do you fall then when it comes to things like nature versus nurture and, and you know, and what difference those things make? Yeah, the, and they are and, – and they're even very uh, – like a really fundamental – my wife Mel is a quarter Greek. So her mum's dad was a Greek guy. Okay. And the vast bulk of the rest of her – um, ethnic is just Anglo and Australian, um, Anglo-Saxon and Australian stuff. But he's a quarter, so he's Greek. So our girls are one eighth Greek, no. and one loves con the fruitera, <laughs> mate, and e- the other does not. E- e- Ellie, the elder girl, none of it. Right, blue eyes, blonde hair. Um, Olivia, the younger one, Ellie's blue eyes, my mum's eyes, like exactly the same. She still looks a lot, Ellie still looks a lot like a mum, but the eyes and all that, no. Olivia, brown eyes, curlier hair, and when they both run around at the beach over summer, Ellie is a white kid who gets a tan, and Olivia just goes this deep brown olive. You could honestly, after they've been in the sun for the same amount of time for a month, you could say to someone, oh, no, they're cousins, and her, her dad is Maltese. So let's talk about your actual philosophy, what mm. you were going to say then, what... Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, let's we'll, we'll take on board that you've given us a bonus philosophy. Sure, you've given us the don't stuff the 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 uh, toilet towels yeah. in, in paper the towels, to- paper in, towels in the urinal. Please. Don't do that because they expand. That's the thing that okay. people don't know. Paper mm-hmm. towels, mm-hmm. you can reuse paper towels. 
I've seen the advertisements. You meant yeah. to wash them out. And, mm. But if you shove them in the urinal, mm. that's not helping anybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's, they don't show you that on the ad. And uh, do they, they do that at the chess club, which is weird to me because I would have thought that if people were really into chess, they'd be like those people who never left the table. You know what I mean? Like, mm. Shouldn't it be like people in casinos where they like a wing under the table and stuff because they're just so into the idea of chess or is it not that sort of thing? Uh, I No, I think uh, in most of your standard tournament play, either the game is so short that you should be able to hold it for, say, a 30, you know, 15 minutes timed each game, or the game is long enough that you can walk away from the table and come back. So the World Chess Championships are taking place at the moment. Yep. Uh, between I saw. There's a, a young rapscallion upcomer. Right. Vishyanand, the 43-year-old Indian world champion who's been the world champion for a lot of the last 10 or so years, uh, and uh, um, Magnus Carlsen, mm-hmm. might be 22 now, um, young Norwegian who's, yeah, crazy young punk, and he was a grandmaster at the age of 15 and uh, was a model for G-Star Raw clothing. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The chess, the chess guys like explaining he was a fashion model at the age of 18. Now, no disrespect to him. Didn't he, get chose, he chose the right career? He didn't get it entirely on looks. He's not, un, not right. unattractive. And in, in, a, in, a, in a room of randomly selected chess grandmasters, you'd probably go... He's cute. But it's rare that, like, you know, being good at chess gets you over the line in a modelling gig. Rare double. I've never seen an episode of Australia's Next Top Model where they've gone, how are you on a chessboard? <laughs> no, no, yeah, in the Beauty and the Geek. Yeah, well, Beauty and the Geek would be your sort of petri dish for testing that stuff out. But, yeah, you're more likely. Uh, see you soon, sweetheart. And, um, yeah. No, no, no more secrets and, and no more kids either because I had a vasectomy. There you go. <laughs> Bombshell. <laughs> Bombshell for anyone who wasn't listening to my radio show because I did talk about it at the time. But uh, so, yeah, to the other 85.4% of people in Sydney who don't listen to my show, fuck them. Um, so World Chess Championships taking place at the moment. Yes. Anand, 43, versus uh, Carlson, 23. And so the old-timers want the old cagey fox just to hold on one more time. Other seat is the changing of the chess card. This younger guy, amazing, has a higher ranking than Anand and just plays phenomenal Phenomenal chess and will certainly be one of the greatest players of all time. That's taking place at this very moment. But in those matches, mm. so they've got to have, I think it's 40 moves each in the first two hours. Then your clock's reset and you get more time. They'll often just walk off and if, if needed. If nature calls, you can go. Right. And come back. That's, that's the that's – the, and, and while they're gone, they're just chewing the positions over anyway. Those guys don't – I really guess it's not like the other dude can swap all the pieces around. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. confusing it with, like, playing with your brother. No, no. And it's also frowned on at that level to bump the board. <laughs> we actually, when, when, when some guys at, at university who I debated with, yeah. a guy a couple of years older than me, was a, Tim Riley, very good chess player, and he was offered a big uni debating tournament once, only a couple of weeks before the National Chess Championships or something like that, and he had... Um, so in his room, about five different chess boards, I wasn't there, but the guys in the teams of that years told me, um, about five different chess boards set up in various positions for what he was exploring as different opening lines he wanted to pursue at this upcoming tournament. And uh, so these you know, wags would go in occasionally and move the pieces around while he was you know, out at breakfast or something like that. He'd walk back into his room, look at the boards, and just instantly go, yeah, Warren, it's not funny. Then just go and rearrange the pieces back into the positions they were in on the five different chess boards in his room that these guys thought they were just, you know, mucking him around big time by rearranging the... No. That's a great story, but it's also a great story because when you said wags, I imagine they were the wives and girlfriends of celebrity sports people. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
Yeah, those chess wags. <laughs> oh, uh, did, you, did you see those at, at, at the Melbourne Cup last week? Some of those chess wags oh, misbehaving in the all over cage. the social pages. Just embarrassing. Okay, so let's can't get take to, them anywhere. Let's get to it. What 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 were you going to have as your philosophy? Yeah, and I, I well, that, and that's I was on on, on that topic. I, I think well, I've got you know, I've got, I've, it was inter- it's a very interesting process to go through talking about um, you know thinking about being on something like this. Uh, because you have to, you know, espouse or spout forth your philosophy, and I don't know if I'd ever had one at the top of my mind. That if people had just stopped me in the street and said, "What is it?" Well, that's interesting to me in itself mm-hmm. because I'm not sure that I necessarily would have one either, and that's mm. part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation with people. And I, I certainly don't want it to be a sort of podcast where someone has to come on and say, "This is it," yeah, and I live by this, yeah, and then I'm just going to use it to go through and look at all yeah. your stuff and go, yeah. ah, "Hang on, <laughs> that's the opposite of that." Exactly. Why on this date did yeah. you? <laughs> I saw you willing a door, Todd so, Sampson. So I'm even interested in the idea that you perhaps. Like, wouldn't think immediately that you do have a philosophy. Mm. I, I, it's not something that comes into your mind every day. No, and I see, I see certain. Like, I look at the things I do in life and can look back at those and go, "Oh, okay, I'm clearly a certain type of personality, mm-hmm. or driven by certain types of things." But I rarely have a uh, a a theme or belief that's driving them and certainly not something that I would encapsulate my thoughts in a small number of words and I'm not particularly the sort of person in the scheme of people not particularly the sort of person who thinks about life that much in that sense in a, in a like a group of people sitting around a table talking about the way the world is or why people I I've, I would never and it might be partly because I'm at the ABC so I'm not meant to, but I would never talk about politics at a dinner party or it's just not the sort of thing what do you talk about at a dinner party? If someone, uh, you know, is doing one of those, there's five people that I want to have dinner with mm. and they nominate Adam Spencer, what are they going to get? Yeah, they, they, for probably someone who just sits there and is sort of awkwardly, not quite shy, but doesn't really say that much and doesn't say as much as people would be expecting them to unless he's poked with a stick and asked to talk on topics. What if uh, we offered these people, if they paid $5,000 extra, they could poke you with a stick? Yeah, well, then I'm Are you willing yeah, to? Yeah, absolutely. I know, I know that you're looking at new career options next <laughs> year. I'll so. take that. Yeah, yeah. Dinner with Adam Spencer, yeah. $5,000 extra, poking with a stick. Poking with a stick. And- Shy seems like a word that people would not associate with mm. you. So uh, explain where, you know, what that means, where that comes from. Is that one of those things where you are very social for work? You're talking to people mm. every morning. You're hosting functions. You're talking to large groups of people. I certainly know that the, th- the thing that people find most surprising about me is how private and how quiet I am a- yeah. outside my work. I need, to, I need to know someone reasonably well before. Or I'll just faff on with them about the first thing to pop out of my head. Um, and in groups of people who all know each other, if I'm out with a group of you know my wife's friends who I you know earlier on in our relationship I didn't know them that well or anything like that, most people would not have looked at me afterwards and gone, "Oh, that'd be the guy who talks for a living, yeah, or cracks jokes." There's for a the living. life of the party. Yeah, exactly. I didn't even see him do any maths. No. <laughs> I don't reckon that is him. No, exactly. And yeah, and so in, in, yeah, in that sense, I you know. Shy or just not bored isn't the word, but just I don't naturally engage with that sort of stuff. What does excite you then? Like what what is in your brain? You know, because obviously you have a big brain and it's one that's being used mm. all the time. I can't imagine you're just a person at home like with that Homer Simpson little bird with the water in your brain, do, 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 do <laughs> yeah. you know. That's not what your brain's like. So 
so what are you thinking about? What's in your head? Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly setting myself I'm, – I'm very obsessive about projects and tasks. So I don't see much point in doing anything not particularly well. And so I tend to get a little bit obsessive about doing things as well as I can, mm-hmm. which people sometimes understandably confuse with a competitiveness of uh, – I want to do this in a way because I want to beat everyone else who's doing it. Uh-huh. That's not the case. But if I'm going to do something, I want to <clears throat> do it as well as I can mm-hmm. or at least have an indication as to how well I could do it. Right. So one of the great frustrations in my life was my time at university, which was wonderful. Uh, and when Best it, 15 years of your life, My right? answer was best nine and a half years of my <laughs> life by a long way. But uh, <clears throat> I didn't complete my maths PhD and was never going to. Mm-hmm. Uh but as much as because of some bad choices I made in terms of picking subjects on my way through and because of then with other things going on and distractions and all that, never really knuckling down and having a crack at it. And so I would, <coughs> I would much rather have given that everything I had and then been told by someone, no, nah, you, nah, you don't have a maths PhD in you, mate. That's fine. Don't be embarrassed about that. I'd much rather know that than now just not even know. I'm not that, that upset by the fact that I don't have one as much as I just genuinely don't know if I could have got one or not. I think that is really fascinating. I think people would not uh, – I think it's it goes to that idea of it's the things that you don't try mm. that are the things that – haunt you now i'm not saying that you mm. didn't try to do that but mm. i understand what you mean it's very much i'm at a point in my life where i'm um you know uh, going over to america i'm working mm. a lot there and it's really a lot of it starting again you know at the bottom but and you know i've been lucky enough even in the last few weeks i've been offered a couple of you know reasonably big jobs here things that like mm. you know you kind of go am i making the right decision you know i'm giving up a lot of money i'm and giving up five a lot years of- ago you would have just grabbed right yeah and the thing that it always comes back to is I know that I will regret not seeing if I was good enough to do it. Mm. Like I don't have any expectation that, you know, I think I'm a little bit late in life for it really to like, you know, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm nearly 40 years old. That's not the time you want to be starting your career in a new country. Like I understand that it's not ideal circumstance and I understand that there's plenty of people in that country who are as good at what I do as I am. Like, you know, and I have to get a lot better to be that good. But I fucking just can't live with the yeah. idea that I didn't try to see. So I think that's a really, like, it's a very generous insight for you to give us right now because people don't like to talk about that. Mm. People don't like to talk about the time where you don't regret, like you said, you don't mm. regret that you didn't get the PhD. You regret that you didn't put yourself in a situation to yeah. have a proper crack at it and see if you could. Yeah, because, and also people have a very misguided uh, understanding of mathematics and they think that, you know, what it means to be good at mathematics. And as I jokingly say that, you know, in a room of randomly selected people, I'm a maths genius. Right. In a room of maths PhDs, I'm as dumb as a box full of hammers. Right. <laughs> I just don't have any idea what's going on through <clears throat> it having been out of the game for right. a long time. With the rest of us, uh, you're goodwill hunting on the whiteboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with maths geniuses, you're just cleaning up, mopping up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I am both sides of the coin that is Matt Damon. It's just a matter of which way you're looking. Um, yeah, but, and that, but that's also, you know, because mathematics intimidates most people so much that if you can tell them what nine times 14 is, you're in the upper 
echelons. But isn't the and look, I was thinking about this just today. I was thinking on the way over here because you know it's I've I've got some tax things that I need to do, <laughs> and and I was really just doing that sort of thing of going. I wish at school they'd said to me. Uh, we're going to teach you enough about accounting that you can look after your own money mm. and know what's going on in your life and won't freak out around tax time. You don't need to be an accountant. Yeah. We, you just, we're just going to teach you enough that so you can yep. survive in life. They, and it's the same with maths. I feel like there's lots of things I'd love to know about mm. maths, but I feel like the way that it was, particularly with the high school that I went yeah. to, the way that maths was presented, it wasn't uh, inviting to people like me. Yeah, and the other thing I've always said they can do a lot more, if, and it's the same debate they're having in New South Wales at the moment in the scandalous situation where you can complete your HSC and not do maths. I find that very, very difficult. But part of the problem is there's not courses presented that people would want to do. I would, in terms of what a lot of people do, at uni, at high school, unless they were going to go on to do stuff in mathematics at, at university, you know, like engineering and that sort of stuff where you really need some more solid stuff, I'd strip out a lot of that syllabus and have people doing stuff that works on just the logical mind and the rigour of the mind and, you know, those you know those problems, those logical problems, seven houses in a row, blue, green, yellow, I mean, there's three guys, two guys, blah, 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 blah. Who's living next door to the guy who owns the parrot? And that sort of stuff. It's got nothing to do with mathematics, but it's all just logic and, well, this, well, that can't be because those two things would contradict each other. If you give younger people that sort of. Uh... Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Who's got the One Direction tickets? It's one of the following three people. Is it the vegetarian? That sort of thing. And, but that sort of, that sort of rigor is so much more important than whether 15 years on you can remember your cosine rule for working out, you know, as you know, the relationship between the opposite side of a triangle and the angle. Yeah. It's like the relationship between men and women. Am I right? There you Come go. Come on, guys. <laughs> what is it? What is it? With Come those on. What's triangles. The deal with? <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, let's go back and, and do this one more time. Yes. You don't necessarily have a philosophy, but you went to the effort of actually thinking about what it yeah. might be if if you did have one. Mm. Well, yeah, and my, so I was going to try and encapsulate where a lot of us at with the phrase that we should all play more chess. Right. And, and, and what do you mean by that? Well, it, it, a few different aspects of a statement like that. First of all, chess in itself, yep. I just think it's a beautiful, noble, dignified game. To yeah. play. The Black idea- people against white people. That's what you yeah. mean, right? <laughs> the idea of That's what I'm getting the, out of this, right? The, idea of, <laughs> no, the interaction between religious figures in bishops and horses right. and knights is just... <laughs> yeah, that's right. A lot going on. You're there. lobbying for... Exactly. The queen- priests can't marry women, but no. they can marry horses, the right? The queen is stronger than the king, yep. but it is the king that one has to be protected. No, the, the you know, I don't want to think about that too much. No, the... It's, it's a game. I went to Ukraine years ago with a friend of mine... Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was a very good chess player, and we used to play a lot in Sydney. And uh, we were over there in her hometown of Lvov, which is not in Kiev, which is the capital, but far over to the uh, west, small town, about a million people, small by Ukrainian standards, in a local square, sort of like your Hyde Park or something in Sydney where people play chess, where all the old, a lot of them homeless and you know drinking guys, but being Ukrainians, they can play chess, right. just used to hustle tourists. For money. Chess hustlers. Totally. Totally. There's playing. It's like one hryvna to play. Right. And you play these guys. And they've all got enough of an understanding of chess that any standard opening you're going to play against me, they know it to yeah. eight or ten moves. And they know a couple of little tricks such that they will just weed you out. Right. They'll be far enough ahead and off they go. I sit down playing against this guy. 
and I'm sitting next to my friend Veronica, and people don't speak English in this part of Lavov. Certainly, older gentlemen no, who are not know, old chess hustlers on the fringes of society a yeah. little bit. And so we're sitting next to each other, just doing lovey dovey, you know, cuckoo talk as far as they can tell. Oh, yeah, just stroking yeah, yeah. her face and going, <laughs> "I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of taking the night. What do you think?" <laughs> and she go, "No, no, 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 no. Just push your pawn one more to C four. Oh just put a bit of pressure on." This the is board. like a hipster Ocean's Eleven. Oh, and, and, yeah, and. <laughs> And, and for me, it was just total dirty talk. She right. Was going, Push the yeah, that's hand. right. Ironically, oh. you were pretending to do dirty talk, but yeah. <laughs> the chess stuff was, was turning you far on. Far dirtier than yeah. anything he could have thought we were talking about. Uh, and, and we play this guy, and you, we get beyond the sort of eight to ten moves where he'd normally have someone, and you could suddenly see a little change in his demeanour of, uh-oh, these guys can play a bit. And suddenly he's beyond his comfort zone and doesn't know what sort of moves he should be doing. And a few of his mates who've watched their ga- his games have finished – look over and see that he's given off a bit of that vibe, they come over and just start standing behind him with their hands in their pockets, sledging me Oh, in Ukrainian. Yeah, right. And so I'm, I'm going, oh, we should do this. And Veronica's just going, ha, ha, you should hear what they're saying about you right now. And we're <laughs> playing away. And then finally he just pushes one pawn a square. He just pushes one, one square forward and Veronica just goes, ha, ha, got him. And he just ever so slightly overcommitted one of his pieces on one side of the board, and we just dismantled him, took him apart, had a great game, gave him, we paid him. Right. 20 of the local currency, and so that was just great, and shook his hands and all this sort of stuff, and all the mates wanted to know about me, and she lied and said I'm some guy going off to this big tournament in England and right. all that sort of stuff. Brilliant. But it was this, this guy and I did not know a word in common. Uh, we're 50 years apart in age, living on the opposite sides of the world, totally different people, united over this beautiful little universal language of this board game. Right, so chess in itself is just a noble and a beautiful thing. Uh, it's a game that you learn a lot from. So, uh, what lessons do you learn from chess then? That that preparation is important. That even when you're ahead, one mistake can stuff everything for you. That unchallenged, unjustified aggression will often lose out to just sensible, patient. Uh, someone just taking their time and just waiting. If you, if you just throw your hands around like an idiot, you will eventually make a mistake. And just the beautiful thing about it is that, <coughs> excuse me, that there's so many pieces and so many moves you can make, unless you're an elite player that none of us will ever be. If you and I had a game of chess now and you understand the rules and we play, that game that's been played just then in the next 15 minutes will be a unique game of chess that has never been played before. How can that be possible? The move orders. There's, well, there's 200 billion different possible games of chess you can play in terms of all the pieces you move. There's that many? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how can it be then that people – because when you read about these chess masters, yeah. they are able to – like I, I just imagine it's like, you know, well, when they made that TV show of Sherlock Holmes yeah. and he looked around the room and then he, they showed you on the screen yeah, yeah, and everything. Yeah. I assume that's how they see it, right? They see it all – like is that how it works? No, because they get to a level where of those 200 billion games that we've yeah. mentioned – 199 billion of those are rubbish. Oh, okay. Yeah, so within, right. if That's you, a good you, point. We can play anything you want, but no. we, if you don't know what you're doing, within five right. moves, they'll take you down. So the only time where... <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and so if, if you're at the absolute elite level... <laughs> so I could put out a really, really big book of shit chess strategies. Oh, yeah. I mean, you remember that time? Remember that time we played chess against the guy, the guy who came in? Oh, yeah. That was Vishyanant. That's the guy who is the world champion at the moment. Oh. And we played that game yep. live on air. And for, I'm trying to remember, I think... I think he won, <laughs> didn't he? The time I played, I'm trying to remember. It, 
No, he did. He did. <laughs> he, he beat me. I I, I, look, I mean, I, my memory's not as good as it could be, but I'm just going to... I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Right. Um, I remember, he, I remember yeah. you asking Can't him, believe that people think you're competitive. I, I <laughs> you're trying to whitewash Vishyanan in his last lap of world championship. <laughs> he's been holding on. There's this newcomer. And he, he's got full confidence. Yeah. He thinks he can hold on. And then he hears back from Australia that he lost to some radio dudes. <laughs> some radio dudes rewriting history. No, he, beat, he, beat, he did beat me. Fair and square. Yeah. And so that game, right. it's quite possible that game, he's never played that before. Because I made a few moves and was out of my depth very quickly. But th- what he's playing against Carlson the other day, their first game, uh, 16 moves each and they agreed on a draw. Right. So they just play a standard opening theory. You have a go at something a bit different. I've thought about it and prepared, bang, and we're good. So that, that may well be a game that's been played before. But at the level of just competent players, it'll be a unique game of chess. Okay. Like literally never happened before with its own stories and, and... And how do you think that relates more broadly to life? And the, Well, the other thing about it is it's a if you choose to do it, it is something at which you across your life can constantly strive to be better at. Right. And that's really what I think it is for me. I think... It, you, look, well, you've, you've struck on something I think that is very important, yeah. like, and I think about quite a lot, is that idea of... I think that we set this and, – and Todd Sampson talked about it a lot on his – that the, uh, the path you plan is the path that you won't yeah. follow because we concentrate a lot on end results. Yeah. And in my experience, there's never been in my life an end result that has been so satisfying that it has, it has been worth not enjoying mm. all the work it took for that end result. Yep. Like, you know, you need to be able to go – be, uh, being able to get better, hmm. like I think sometimes that people think that you need to be perfect. Like, no. you know, new comedians, like I've never done a perfect gig and I'm stumbling by fine. Hmm. Like, you know, like I, I, I want to get better all the time. I always think of it as a positive. Every time I do a show, I look at the faults that, that hmm. show had and went, okay, now I know how I can get better at this next time hmm. because I can correct those things that I've, I've done wrong this time. And it also is, it's a constant striving to get better in something that teaches you one of the, one of the real rules in life that, that just simple application will bring about the results. There's, right. a, there's a small number of people I'm sure who have a certain genius in perceiving things on a chessboard, but for the vast bulk of people, time in comes to time out. You've seen I've, I've got a guitar in the study here and I'd, I'd, I'd done a charity gig in Brisbane for Red Kite, the kids' cancer charity yes. we help out. And that night the person who'd spoken at the... Uh, event was a music therapist. Music therapists go into hospitals where kids are going to be for a long time and just sing songs to them and maybe help the kids write music back and all that sort Fantastic. of stuff. Fantastic. Yeah, and music therapy works for the troubled, disadvantaged kids. My wife's a, um, on the board of something called the ACMF, Australian Children's Music Foundation, Don Spencer, former play school, that sort of stuff, which does takes you know, music lessons into detention centres and all that and just gives kids something to look forward to and express themselves. And similar for some kid who's got cancer and is going to be in hospital for the next five months, just a couple of hours a week of singing songs, either for the really young kids so they're not scared or for the slightly older kids who can make their own music. It's wonderful stuff. She'd spoken about that. And I was flying home and my elder girl, Ellie would have been maybe two and I don't think Olivia had been born yet mm-hmm. or maybe had just been born and Ellie was three. And I'm flying home thinking I couldn't even... I couldn't even sing Bar Bar Black Sheet with him. Can't be that hard, can it, to like, you know, hold down a couple of chords on a guitar? Right. So the plane lands at Sydney Airport and I'm driving home. I think, who do I know who plays the guitar? Who do I know? Oh, 
actually do know Murray Cook from the Wiggles because he oh, lives right. not far from our place and we've spoken a couple of times. <laughs> so not only did you say, who do I know who plays guitar? You were yeah. like, who do I know who plays guitar and knows a few kids' songs? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Murray, who would, yeah, who would, who would my kids most m- want me to be? Yeah. Murray from the Wiggles. Yeah. And so rang him and I said, I'm thinking of getting a tar- guitar. And he said, and there's a place just up the road from where I live and he's not far from me. He said, you just go to Pete's, the musician's market there on King Street and, you know, get a blah, blah. So... I've left on the Friday um, morning to go and do this gig. I've arrived back Saturday lunchtime, walking in the same door as my wife saw me leave with my small suitcase of luggage in one hand and a guitar in the other. And <laughs> Mel doesn't miss a beat. That's why I love her. She just looks up and goes, hi. Oh, you've, you've brought your midlife crisis home with you, have you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving radio and I'm... I'm- Going on the road. Get in the band. Get in the band. And so... Uh, the bad news is I don't have a secure job anymore. The good no. news is I'm now the most unpopular wiggle. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Right? Yeah. I'm writing yeah. a lot of songs about maths yeah. and I'm yeah. taking them and on the road. This guitar has been recommended to me by Murray. And so... It's called a blah, blah, I had apparently. I had not picked up a guitar before the age of about 40. Yeah. And by the age of 40, most of the things you're doing in your life, you're good at or you want to be doing them. Right. You know, if you crap at something... And it's rare that you start something, despite the fact that yeah. we all... Like, you, you know, I want to learn... The amount of... I, I think the last four years, you know, I've gone, I'm going to learn a new language this yep. year. And yep. just other if you know, stuff If you're no good at tennis, you've given it up by the time you're 40, yep. right? Um, you know, um, I would say that about everything in my life, except perhaps love making that I still work on. But... Um, <laughs> Like chess. And one day, yeah, one day we'll, yeah, at least, sometimes, at least get a ranking. Sometimes it's over in 16 moves. Yeah. <laughs> and they both agree to draw exactly. and step away. Exactly. And I have done some things in the bedroom that are un- have never been done never before. Never been done Completely before. unique. Anyway. Well, uh, and once with Vishyanan. Exactly. On the couch, yeah, but that's I've another story. I've been in time trouble before. Right. Uh, anyway. Um, and so I went through that at age 40. Yeah. Yeah, of every every single person, the first time you pick up a guitar, you are terrible. Terrible. Beyond, beyond terrible. Terrible. And can't make sense. It hurts your hands and Plenty all that. Plenty of people in bands are still exactly. terrible. <laughs> but I went went through that whole thing of actually thinking, oh, maybe I am in that 1% of people who just can't. Right. Okay. Play, and I stuck at it. And how did you feel it? about that? Like, did, were you frustrated by that? Yeah, was there a point where you decided, really did, you, you thought, I'm stuff it. I'm an adult. I don't need to play this guitar. You're really, not better than me, it's guitar. It's really frustrating. It's yeah. re- and you, you're strumming at it and, you, and you'll get angry at yourself and literally just, oh, for fuck. Fucking go, go there. And you're shouting at your fingers yeah. as though it's someone else's fault. Right. It's probably mine. It's probably. My fingers. I mean, well. I'm the one who's trying to put them there. Yep. But then you get these little breakthroughs and then you suddenly, and I, there was this time when I remembered I'd, I'd gone from being unlistenable mm-hmm. to ponderous. Right. And that was just Great. glorious. Yeah. But I used to sit on this, no, not the, on the old couch that I conceived my first daughter on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um and I was I was watch the ABC News every night, and during the half hour of the news, would sit there and just without a pick, just softly with the fingers strum and try and hold. So doing half an hour a night, surprisingly by myself, no one else wanted to watch the news. Great way to get. What's the news with a little acoustic guitar in the background? Great stuff. And me, you didn't pitch that to ABC Twenty Four. Swearing. Here's your new idea for your breakfast show. Virginia Trioli on the couch while I yeah. just strum in the background. Exactly. You can stream it. It's great. Um, and it's a pop-up digital station. <laughs> but uh, then and, – and eventually, just through no talent, 
yep. just time in application leading to result. I'm like competent at it now. Yeah. You know? And so I can, you know, look at chords of a song and I can hear it. Other people can't necessarily, but it's got to the point where it's quite enjoyable. And that process, and chess teaches you that as well, or just having something that teaches you that is is really um, a very, I think, a salutary lesson. The ability to complete something, I think, uh, is important. I speak to people quite a lot about the idea of, uh, I like that I went to university, even though yeah. halfway through university, I knew that I was never going to use my journalism uh, degree. But I, uh, I enjoyed the fact that uh, I got out of my uni degree and I'd learnt that I could finish something. That's the, that's the thing about it, that you... Uh, is that, okay, well, I finished that, then maybe when I go on and do something else, I can also, you know, finish that, use those same skills. Yeah, absolutely. And also the, I mean, things like playing the guitar and, 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 or playing chess are a little bit more open-ended yeah. than that. But things that there are... Well, you can still get better exactly. at them. Like you can, ongoing. Completely. Which I think is actually one of the great thrills of life. Is, I mean, I think that's why people are... I've never been fascinated by golf. But from the people I know who like golf, yeah. that's what I hear that they like about oh, yeah. golf, is the idea that you're getting good at a skill that you're never going to master. Yeah, and it's, and it's also it's having yourself in a certain circumstance and realising six months ago, I would have fucked that. I would have stuffed that up entirely. As it was, played a nice little chip shot, tapped it in. And the great thing about golf, I've played a tiny bit. You'll go around a course in 120 shots and you'll remember four of them. Right. You'll remember four glorious shots than the other 116 do fade away. I was playing in a charity golf day once for the Swans and there was a guy organising. So we're all in groups of four and we're going around this course. And so we started on about the sixth hole and we're going around. We're going to finish eventually on the fifth, having done all 18 because it's loaded up with 70-odd players. This guy's just standing on the balcony of the first, just watching as people tee off on the first, welcoming them all. How are you going? Great. Have a good day. And he's the sort of guy who would be... Judgmental, slightly harsh, but he would note how you can do things. Right. Sort of, and as we're walking up, having done the 18th, about to start on the first, Adam, how are you going? How are you hitting him? And I said, oh, you know, so-so, nothing special. And we're in this group of four, and as luck would have it on that tee, I was the last to hit. These other three guys are all quite competent golfers hit it. And I'm like, I can, if I'm playing golf with someone who knows what they're doing, I won't slow them down horrendously. But I'm by no stretch of the imagination any good at golf. Uh-huh. I put this ball down. I hit it. It's as sweet as I've ever hit a golf ball in my life. It's gone and landed at the furthest of the other three balls. It's landed just past that on the full, bounced on another 40, 50 metres, dead straight. Like, honestly, right. if you'd given a professional the shot, they might have said, oh, I'll take that. Yep. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. lock that in. Like, and, yeah. <laughs> so I've hit it like that, and I'm about to start this whooping big victory dance. and then Which re- would betray you as not being a professional. So I just turned to him and said, like I said, mate, so-so, nothing special. <laughs> and walked down that fairway thinking, he will never see me hit another fucking ball in my life. Right. He will go to his grave thinking that's what I consider a so-so shot. Oh, I... I- <laughs> I have friends like that um, about my comedy. I have friends who came out, like real friends of mine, yeah. lifelong friends of mine, friends and family, who came to my first ever comedy festival shows and have never come back. <laughs> now, firstly, I understand that because yeah. I was there. I know what they were like. Yeah. But the second thing is I've got better. Yeah. Like 
Come it's on. Dem- I'm demonstrably better. I will give you free tickets to something that is actually worth something now. Yeah. If you'd, if you'd invited them out to another gig a fortnight later, yeah. you could understand their trepidation. Right. Assuming 15 years on... How bad were those gigs that 20 years on, they are still not willing to... S- Either you've got a wealthy benefactor who really doesn't check up on you that much, or you're doing all right now. But that's an interesting perspective, I think, which is that that's their only perspective yeah. of having seen me do comedy. Mm. So often, you know, the broad picture of our life is not what various people within our lives mm. see. Yeah. The people at work see a different you to the people at home see a different you to yeah. by the very nature of those things. And right? the, the, the only thing I would say also in that sort of broad umbrella of philosophies and with me at the moment it's the chess and the guitar i'm finishing up breakfast right at the end of this year and i'm really excited that by the end of next year i'm going to be a much better chess player than i am now and a much better guitar player and i'll have with the chess there's this website called chess.com where you go and you can play games against people around the world they have a puzzles page where you just you just it just throws you a situation on chessboard and you have to say what the best move is and you're timed and you've got a points ranking and i'm currently at like 1550 or something i've been as high as 1650 and dropped down to 1400 and you can't if you quickly just go and try a puzzle because you've got a spare minute it's you've really got to lock yourself in right it's best to do like about an hour yeah and after about um, if i try and do an hour after about 45 minutes I get on a real roll, then I start making some stupid mistakes because I'm tired. But you can feel that time of how long before I get tired getting pushed back a little bit. So I'm locking in next year for I'm doing three two-hour sessions a week, regardless of where I am, what I'm doing, three two-hour sessions of problems on this website. So, I, I, I love – it's like when a sports person retires, they're like, I want to spend more time with my family. Mm-hmm. You've you retired from radio because you want to spend more time with your chessboard. Absolutely. And so that's that that and the, and the, and the guitar are two things next year that I'm currently trying to get better at. So, but – okay, so let's talk about the idea of, like, leaving the radio because this is a big – like, it's a momentous – well, at least externally – it seems to people to be a momentous moment in your life. You're mm-hmm. a guy who's had a couple of really long-term successful radio stints basically in a row, Yep. Uh, you know, f- from the public's mm-hmm. perspective, basically in a row, and then you're, you're stepping away from that. Do, is that a decision that uh, came very easily to you? Uh, when you make decisions, how do you make them? Are you a person who goes on your gut or is it a thing that, you know, you need to discuss with Mel? Is it a thing that you sit down and write a list of pros and cons? Mm. Like how do you process a big life decision like that? I'd, I'd, I had promised Mel that by the end of next year, 2014, I'd be finished. And that was just a matter of when. And we had admittedly... You've brought it in under target. Well, yeah, yeah. You should, you should, be, running, you should be running the country out Well, no, sure. She will. <laughs> did, you do a, did you do a budget, mini budget estimate? You, yeah, and a, a, a MIFO. If you were sitting here, if she was sitting here now, she would point out to you that wasn't the first time we'd made a deal on when it was going to finish. Oh, okay. So, I, you know, I, I brought in the... <laughs> it got I, extended for a couple of seasons. I brought in Series 3 under budget. Right. Series 1 and 2 might have run a little bit long. I see. But I'd, so I decided by the end of next year it was going to be done. And then for me with big decisions like that, I tend to just suddenly realise. And it's, you know, as I said on air when I announced it, as someone who dreams of sporting glory and rarely performs it above sporting mediocrity, there is a bit of an analogy with the athlete. You just suddenly realise one day, I realised... I'll be fine at the end of this year. I really can't guarantee I'd be good at the end of 2014. And it's not like other jobs where you can just in the middle of June say, look, I'll give you six weeks' notice. I'll be out of here in the second week of August. You can't do that. You've really got to run a year with Breakfast Radio. You could get the Prime Minister on and ask if their boyfriend was gay. Yep. 
That tends to see you later. <laughs> I'll just be I'll just be packing my bags, guys. <laughs> um, and so it, 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 and I also do get quite logical about that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a big decision in some ways, but because I mean, externally, you're looking at something. You're you're hosting what was often the number one AM breakfast show in Sydney, Australia's mm-hmm. biggest city. You're talking only this, ever second biggest. You're talking. Oh, only ever second biggest? Yeah. Oh, of course, Alan Jones. Jones. Sorry, oh, well, yeah, that's right. My but, one, my one. Well, I mean, yeah, slight regret. Okay, but a very, very high rating. Solid, very show. solid. Yeah, yeah. And you're talking to all of Sydney. Yep. I, I imagine it's a position that comes with like some perceived power, even if it's oh, not yeah. power that you you know choose to exercise that I, often. I will certainly have, as Gareth Evans referred to it, when Hawkey's government lost power, um, or the, the Keating government, as it then was, uh, to John Howard. You'll go through relevance deprivation right. syndrome. And how do you feel about relevance deprivation syndrome? Well, the thing is, the, the, the logic, the logician in me kicks in and says, like, I'm 45 next year, so this was going to happen sometime in the next couple of years. I haven't, at the age of 58, decided, do I want to throw this in or should I just run two more years here and I'm done and never need, you know, want to do anything else? So I was always going to go on to something new. Okay. So then it just becomes a time of, well, logically, you have to make that decision at some time. I'd rather make that decision now than in a year from now when I'd be less happy. And, you know, if you stayed, as you would remember with the Triple J times, if you stay one year too long in Breakfast Radio, you'll hate the last three or four months so much. You'll forget why you loved the first seven or eight years so much. So... It then becomes this logical process for me of you have to decide to stop this either now or a year from now. They're the only two choices you've really got. Which of those is the better choice to make? Do this. Did you have a plan in place for what would happen afterwards or did you then have to put that in place? Because if we go back to when we finished up at Triple Mm. J, I know that you know it was more about that we thought it was time to finish doing the show rather than either of us just going, well, this is definitely what I'm going to do next. No, I didn't have much of a plan. No, lucky you knocked up your wife. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Well, at the time, the fact that Mel was pregnant was was something that I, you know, in a way meant I'm certainly not going to be sitting around wondering what to do with myself. Right, but at the same time, there must have been some sort of pressure of going, I have to make sure that I can look after this situation financially. And sometimes in that situation, people can make decisions on staying on a a job another year if it's a safe opportunity. Yeah, but wait till, you know, I I finish on December 6th and I have a range of product endorsements coming on on December 7th. (laughs) (coughs) That'll make it very clear. I've already already mentioned chess.com. If there's one place... (laughs) Kids, that you want to go to get the very best in chess problems, chess.com is the website to go to. You can tell Adam's enjoying not being on the ABC talking for a minute. You can plug as much as you want on a free podcast. Exactly. In fact, if chess.com want to get on... It's free, but I'm getting paid. Oh, yeah. No, I meant free for the public. Thank you. Oh, it costs me thousands a year. That's, as long as I'm getting paid for my appearance here. So I'm happy to endorse whatever product that was. Yeah, chess.com. Yeah, chess. Oh, chess.com for all your chess needs. That Diet Coke's going down well, isn't it? The Diet Coke is going yeah, down well. Yeah. It's probably terrible for us, mm. though, right? Yeah. I'll tell you what's not terrible. The new BMW X5. <laughs> Fuck me. It handles well, I've been told. Proud sponsors of the <laughs> Willosophy episode three coming soon. Um, so with that, so with the... the, the uh, and I saw parallels with it in my life at university where the, the, you know, the, the notional end goal... So, like, I started at university in an arts law degree yep. uh, simply because I was really good at debating yep. in high school and someone's mum told me, if you're good at debating, you should probably do law. Right. And, uh, and then dropped all my art subjects except for mathematics, which I'd simply pick because I knew it wouldn't be that hard so I could 
cruise through that bit of university. <laughs> Drop- they are not sentences that are often used. <laughs> like... Dropped all my, oh, mate, I found mathematics so much easier than philosophy and economics and whatever else I was doing. Dropped all the law subjects and then law and realised I really didn't want to do that. Stuck around at maths because I didn't want to leave uni yet and then ended up starting a PhD, which I didn't finish. So by any sort of strict criteria, as, an, as a university degree, as an academic university degree, wasn't crackingly successful. Did you ever have like ambitions of what you thought you like take me back to you know Adam Spencer at high school. Like well no take me back to where Adam Spencer learned how to play chess and we'll take it from there seeing that's the you know analogy we're using. I learned how to play chess when I was about 5 or 6 because the guy who lived next door to us whose name was almost certainly Terry MacArthur broke his leg really badly in a in a workplace accident and had like three months or something rehab next door with the old full leg cast couldn't get off the chair and was just bored out of his brain and said to my mum send adam over and i'll teach him how to play checkers and she said he already knows how to play checkers so he taught me how to play chess and i'm guessing i'm about five or six years old and i can still vaguely <clears throat> remember him he, he looked a little bit like uh from what i recall uh sam simmons Right. Comedy mate, the big thick... Hang on, so your parents let you hang out with yeah. a guy who looked like <laughs> Sam Simmons <laughs> when you are five to play games? This is terribly irresponsible no, he parenting. Was, he was completely immobilised. Oh, yeah, that's right. He was in a cast. Yeah. Or, Adam, always sit lunging yeah. distance away from Terry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't have to run back here. Just run. Just run. Just run laps of the house. That's why I'm so fit these days. Um, uh, and no, so he taught me how to play chess, so yeah. it would have been just maybe starting... School, but my back. You said my parents, you know, and you met them both. Lovely, wonderful people. But I've said publicly before, my dad dropped out of high school in like year nine. Right, and I think it's important to tell these stories because I mean, I was the first person in my family to finish high school. Mm. Todd Sampson told us last episode that neither of his parents could read at one yeah, stage. That was so, amazing. so like, I think it's important to kind of share these things so people. You know, understand that you don't have to come from some family where your your mum was a doctor and no. your dad was a lawyer, and it's fine if you do also. But yeah. like, it, that's not everybody's story. No, no, and there's there's no doubt at all that trajectory is heavily influenced by privilege, in a lot of cases. But <clears throat> entrenched, yeah, you can you can buck that system. Yep. Uh, occasionally. Um, so my dad dropped out of school in year nine. He had really bad asthma and had to go to hospital for injected steroids and all that. And there was no point going back. My mum dropped out of school. Uh, before she'd started high school because her um, family situation was very, very difficult. So I was the first kid in my family to finish high school. Wow. And uh, and first one to go to university, yep. trace the tree as wide as you want. So I picked arts law but had no idea what that meant or where that was meant to be going. And it was a You're t- like, I'm doing nine years to make up for the fact that none of you have exactly. been. Exactly. I'm exactly. doing three years for you, Dad. Exactly. I'm doing three exactly. years for you, Mum. Yeah, I'm not going to finish anything while I'm there. <laughs> but this fifth, sixth and seventh year – they're for you, Mum. Yeah. Um, and but so my parents were great because they spotted early on that I was doing all right academically. And from even early in primary school and through high school and university, they would always back if I made a decision. I remember telling them I was not doing law anymore. I was going to do mathematics, and mm-hmm. then I was going to do a PhD in mathematics. I'm going to drop out of mathematics and go into the media at Triple J and that sort of stuff. And I remember them always thinking, "Well, if you need if you need any advice or help, we're here for you. But we'll we'll back any decisions you want to make." on that but for me that 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 it, even when i was at university and not necessarily moving in a straight line towards an end goal i was always as it turns out and sometimes quite accidentally but doing something 
that was really worthwhile. Like the debating I did at university turned out to be great for me. The theatre sports that I hosted at university and all that sort of stuff. So I don't particularly care if people make a decision in life to stop and do something new or decide something's not the right thing for them. But one real one philosophy would be, and one thing I'm going to try and encourage in the kids is always be doing something, no matter how inane it might seem, that you're happy with it and you think is making you a better person or just enjoying your life more. And it can be as you know, the, the world's not going to you know float or sink on whether I can build out a few guitar, guitar chords. But it's been great for me for the last five years to be pushing myself to be better at that. It's always amazing at what ends up coming in handy though as well. Yep. Often, you know, you'll find in entertainment, you know, someone will get a job on something because, you know, like a a sports show comes up and they need not only someone who's a comedian, Mm. but they need someone who's a really passionate sports fan. Mm. You can't then just study up on being a sports fan. It has to go to the person who genuinely has a passion for that thing. Mm. So I think part of, you know, life is having a broader amount of things that you can do and and keeping your options open a bit on on where you can go with those things. And given that we all, you know, despite increased life expectancy and our ability to multitask, have a finite number of hours on the planet and you certainly don't want to be working... 24 7 all the time on stuff you do need some time just to be sitting around vegging doing zip but if at the end of your life you're told this is how much time you spent sitting around doing absolutely fuck all absolutely nothing i don't know many you know save justice michael kirby on the high court who does wish he'd spent a bit more time just doing jack in his life isn't you don't meet that many people who in their closing days go yeah should have i should have done nothing a bit more should have really really should have got a wee really should have wasted a bit more of my time just punching a few bucket bongs on the couch and not I thought you were talking about wasting time. Oh sorry. Sorry. <laughs> You've confused me now. So uh, so talk me through then because I think people would be interested in this. You're at university. How does how does Triple J happen? Cuz that doesn't seem like you know being an entertainer was even mm. though you were clearly entertaining. You you know you went to the world debating championships. In fact, you were the Named the best debater at the World Debating Championship. 1996, is that world, right? world's best speaker in 1996. Yeah. Hello, ladies. Right. Yeah. But no, but obviously you yeah, liked the I idea yak, of... No, I could yak and my debating style was a very entertaining one. We had theatre sports at Sydney Uni, which was great fun. And at the time that I was hosting theatre sports at Sydney Uni, you just had this crop. Admittedly, I was there for a little while, so I probably saw a wider But You had uh, Rob Carlton, Andrew O'Keefe, Rebecca Diudunamuno, Julian Morrow, Charles Firth, Craig Rucastle, the whole Chaser Gang. Me and the Chaser Gang were the creative force behind the Uni Arts Review in 95 and 96, which brought that back. It hadn't been on for almost 20 years. It was right. Clive James and all those in the 70s. Gritty reboot. And the Chaser, Chaser guy said, well, let's, let's do it. You know, that's, that's another excuse for not studying for the next six months. Let's do an answer. We did a couple of those back to back. And this guy called Andrew Hansen came in one day, could play guitar and piano and, and sing songs. And all that, something. it was that sort of, environment and then one year at the end of the year after the theatre sports had finished that the, the Tuesday lunchtimes had just been packed in the bar and they said can you guys do anything for the remaining six weeks of the semester and we said let's have a student stand-up comedy competition I'll just keep emceeing and we just got all the kids who are smart asses around the place you come up with it's called five minute noodles right you had to come up with anything up to five minutes of stuff and uh <clears throat> Charles Firth did like hilariously funny one time when he had forgotten he was on. Right. And he thought he was on the next week and I said, you're on this week. You've, yeah, and, he, and he just got up and with a newspaper and was just reading things out of the paper and saying, that's fascinating. And just turning to the, <laughs> the classifieds and going, it's a dot matrix print. I only want $85. It's 
fantastically reasonable price. <laughs> anyway, just looking <laughs> through the paper, and you got through to the next round on that because it was pretty weak. <laughs> but so, but M seeing that where it could be anything from that through Tom Gleason started right. there. Tom okay. Gleason turned up with a drum kit and was because he was in a band. That's right. And he's he used to crack jokes in between the songs, so he sat there cracking jokes, doing his own sort of stuff. Uh, Sarah Kendall came through that competition. So I was emceeing that. Well, uh, can we just linger on that for a, yep. a second then before we go into what happened next? How important do you think that being part of a creative generation and group of people is like in regard to creativity? Because you often look at – I know in comedy, and that's yeah. the world that I you know, have grown up in, you find that like – it tends to come through in generations. Yeah. You know, I, back in the day, you know, when I was doing the elbow grease room that, you know, 60 people would come to on a Sunday and none of us got paid. And But, you know, every single week it would be Husey and myself and Rove and Hallie and American Rosso and Tripod yeah. and Michelle Laurie and, you know, Corinne Grant and all these people who went on to – but not just them, the people around it, the guy who produced the show, the, you know, some people around – like people like Miff Warhurst and yeah. people who were our friends – around that time and it comes through. Do you think it's important? Part of me part of me in, endorses in principle why that would be important, but the the rigorous logical mathematician in me doubts the existence of those waves. I think a lot of that happens in hindsight. Right. I think if you look at all those people, it's not like if you and Husey and Justin Hamilton and dot 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 had all walked into a club on the one night uh-huh. or within a fortnight of each other and ten years later blah, blah, if there are a group of guys in the Australian cricket team now who were within six months of age of each other, you'd go, that's incredible. Right. But there's probably so much overlap there. There's probably people a lot younger than you who consider they've come through in the same generation as you. Uh-huh. And there'd be a few old bastards who are 48 saying, yeah, I'm part, yeah, I'm part of Will's crew. Right. And now that spans 20 years or so. It's a very good point. And so I don't know if it happens as – like you look back at – Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie bumped into each other in those Footlight reviews, and there are some amazingly funny people in those. But I'm sure in the ones either side there were also some, you know, if you if you have a if you have, you see it sometimes in the World Cup of football, yep. where there's a nation who makes the World Cup finals um, on the back of this amazing group of people who are all the same age. Yep. Then you don't hear of that country again for a long time. But I think in your artistic sort of things, it's probably easier to get the impression there's this massive wave that just happens in the click of a finger that probably has a fair bit more smearing on the uh, you know the age spread i like that perspective because it's not certainly not one that i've ever considered yeah. I, I i've always been a big subscriber to the idea of like i looked at the dj and that generation yeah. and the things you know because you sparked off each other creatively creatively but i i, I can't understand what you mean as well but it is good i mean one thing that is important in that sort of stuff is having it early on an environment where you do learn that maxim of how important just hard work is and being able to work hard. Myself, Rob Carlton and Andrew O'Keefe did a show uh, for about eight weeks at a local pub in um, sort of Chippendale down near the SCG, the uh, Bat and Ball Hotel. Rob just said, we would come out of the theatre sports thing and said, let's just do this, let's just do it. And it was sort of a 90-minute show each Wednesday night and it was a mixture of just straight-out jokes, uh, you know, character play, we have a debate in the middle of each of it. Andrew O'Keefe would have some suitcases. Bit, and of impro- to- <laughs> bit of impro, the whole thing. And it was 90 minutes of new material every week. Wow. And, and, and Rob Carlton decided to call it Lick Me, I Know You're Dirty. <laughs> that was the name of the show. We, 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 you know, at least it did, people did tend to notice when it was on. And I think we did like, we did like eight of them or something right. like that. 
but it was an hour and a half of new material every week. This is yep. about 1995, 96. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting in my room at college at uni, just staring at a blank piece of paper with the show on in two days and just forced ourselves to work hard enough to have that stuff ready. So where I think that creative environment thing works is it does help people who, who, who have the potential, if they work hard enough at it, to do something, to have a place to do that. Um, and so for me, when I was at uni doing all the – so I was emceeing the, the student stand-up gigs and if it was – if Tom Gleeson finished and had killed it and up next was Sarah Kendall, I'd literally go, that was Tom, here's Sarah Kendall. But if someone got up and died badly, I really needed to say something – Right. To fill in the gaps. Yeah, of course. And so over five or six weeks, there were a few gaps right. to fill in. <laughs> so I'd become more confident actually just straight out telling jokes. And around that time, Triple J had their first ever uh, raw comedy. Right. And the very first year they did it, they actually had a general category and a university category. Oh, okay. Yeah, and right. I went in the very first year of that. Who won the general category? Did you um, know? It was at... Um, was it Anthony uh, Manchetti? Okay, yeah, Anthony Manchetti. That yeah. could be it. Yeah. He won it. It was a bit weird because he won it. I think he won it. And then I sort of came second in the uni category. Right. I think. But people, but, but I, 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 don't know, I don't know if being in the uni category you also qualified for the – but I won New South Wales and went down to Melbourne for that. Okay, right. And so I hopped on the big stage of the comedy festival and was in the – I didn't win the whole thing but went pretty well at that. Mm-hmm. And then Triple J came to Sydney Uni not long after that and did a breakfast show. And I was still studying at the uni, and it's Mikey Robbins and Helen Razor and all that. And they got me up on stage knowing that I'd be reasonable. And so I was just faffing on about uni and all that sort of stuff and had revealed that I was doing a PhD in pure math at the uni. Right. And I, uh, it came time to do the weather, and they asked me if I'd read the weather. And I said, yeah, and, you know, Newcastle's sunny and 16. And Helen Razor leapt in with, hey, maths boy, if you're so smart... Feels so funny. Why don't you tell me something interesting about all these numbers in the weather? Over to you. And there's like twenty to seven in the morning. And yep. This had not been run by me beforehand. No, no, no. You're so on li- the fly. I'm literally, you know, uh, you know, you know, Brisbane fine and twenty five. That's five squared. Uh, Townsville fine and nineteen. Prime number lives next door to twenty. Uh, Newcastle sunny and sixteen. That's two to the power of four and four to the power of two. The only number that can be written in reverse power formation. Euler proved that. Back in the 1770s, just on a roll, right, and um, and ended up doing really well with that sort of stuff. And uh, there was a string. I remember, used to talk about this on stage. There was a string of places in the weather that were all like the last four or five places were all 22 degrees, right. And rather than think, well, fuck, I might just say one of them. They're all 22, and then go oh, with it. Oh yeah, or I might just say one of them's 21 or 23. As if you know, the good people of Perth are going to notice. No, it had to be true to the numbers. That's just, there's only so many things you can say about 22, you know, 2 times 11, uh, square root of 484, um, number of people in a particularly violent game of rugby league where there's been <laughs> two people set off on each side and, you know, and finally and, and saying it was the cube root of however many degrees that it was, blah, blah. And they, they thought that was funny and came in and started doing a little bit of filling stuff on Triple J from there. So that's one of those classic examples of what you were talking about earlier though, isn't it, about you, you never know. It's about being yeah. good at a bunch of things and getting as many experiences as you can. And then sometimes those things are going to come together because if you had not done all that work on maths yep. and your passion in maths and you had not done all that improv stuff yep. and stage stuff, you wouldn't have in that moment had that perfect storm because she didn't ask you to just can you be funny between no. the weather. She was like, can you be funny? 
about maths yep. in the weather. Now, it could have been someone there who had the skills to know the maths and come up with a story but didn't have the presence. I imagine there's probably a bunch of people in the maths world who oh, yeah. could nail those numbers yeah. but might that, not that have 16 the… 16 being 2 to the power of 4 is, is, is a well-kept, not a, not a well-kept secret in the mathematical world. Right. I think it's, would, it's out there. I think they'd it be is fine public. with 22 being 2 times 11. <laughs> <laughs> but they might not be able to present it in yeah. the same way. But if anyone ever said, how, how and, and people do say this to me all the time, mm. how do I get a job on Triple J? Mm. I can't say, well, look, <laughs> all you need to do is be really good at math, be a world champion debater, and then wait for a perfect storm. Exactly. exactly. The other thing I do occasionally look at when, when the, the stuff that I've been lucky enough to do, which does really blow my mind occasionally, is that there was I, – I would not be doing what I'm doing now – if another, not even a friend of mine, a, close, a guy I knew at uni had finished his degree. I don't understand. What do you mean by that? I will talk you through it. I was at uni and I was on the student uh, union. I was president of the student union. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I want to run for the Senate for the university. <laughs> what I love also, by the way, is I think for anyone who's starting to work out why Adam didn't finish his uni degree, yeah. <laughs> it might be because he was doing everything you Had could do stuff. at uni Had a bit of stuff apart going on. from your university <laughs> exactly. studies. So I'm president of the student union and I'm thinking oh, the, the Senate is the governing body of the university uh-huh. and there's a spot on the Senate for an undergraduate and the spot on the Senate for a postgraduate uh-huh. and the election was coming up for the undergraduate on the Senate. So I went around and got all these nomination form filled out including a mate of mine, Nick, and um, the 20 nominees filled it out, went and dropped it in at the office, went off on a – I was going on a debating tour. That's right. We, representing the university in debating in 1992 and down in Adelaide where we won. Yeah. And uh, went away, came – and whilst I was gone, the nomination period was closing, got back – looked at the list of nominees on the uh, official uni notice board and my name wasn't there. And I mm-hmm. went in and said, I've, I've nominated for this. I handed a form in. And they went, oh, no, you're a – nah, here we go. It's this guy, Nick. He's not an enrolled student. He's dropped out of uni. I said, but, we, but he filled out the form and I went to – how was I – right. sorry, mate, you have to have 20 nominees. You can't run in this election. But I – oh, okay. So at the end of – if I'd run in that election, I'm pretty confident I would have won the spot of undergraduate right. on the Senate. At the end of that year, which was my final honours year in maths, I would not have been able to go and do my PhD in mathematics. I would have had to go and finish my law degree if I'd wanted to hold that spot on the Senate. And I think if push had come to shove and people had said, you can be on the Senate, you'd have to keep doing law, or you could throw all that away and you know piss around on a maths PhD if you wanted, I probably would have said, look, the sensible thing to do here is to finish my law degree because I really want to be on the Senate and wouldn't that be fun? So the whole maths thing, I would have gone down to uni, would have gone into the Senate, would have finished my law degree, had already at that stage been made a job offer from a big corporate law firm, which I think I would have gone and done. And so uh, let's, uh, I mean, and obviously this is pure speculation, but let's mm. talk through that sliding doors moment. Yeah. Where, where do you imagine that guy would have gone? Do you think he would have found his way to the world that you've kind of found your way to anyway or do you think that that would have just been a completely different path for you? Yeah, I, I don't think I would have because it, it was only that it was three or four years later that those stand-up comedy and all those opportunities presented themselves and that I was old enough to think I'll give this a go. Having no idea of what the law degree was before I started or where law was meant to send you, but feeling this, not sense of responsibility, but knowing that you know, it was lucky for me to go to university. Right. And if the, if the system had told me, well, the system was telling me, 
Look, you're at university, you're a world champion debater, and it was the late 80s, early 90s. You are corporate law, mate. You are right. Gordon Gekko. Perfect. You have to, this, is, this is what you are born to do. Fuck, you're on the Senate of the University of Sydney. The people you've met now and blah, 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 and sons want you to go in their intern program. Dude, this is what... This is what this is what you're meant to do. This is what you are clearly meant to do. So how do you in those moments, and how do you do this with your own children as well, like, you know, give them support and encouragement but not put so many expectations on someone that they get trapped into a life that they don't want to be doing? Because mm. I think a lot of people feel that. They're, mm. they're not really doing the thing they want to do. They're doing it because they feel like they owe their parents something or they're too scared to tell their parents what they really want to do or they're, they're good at something. The amount of people who I feel like are trapped in careers because they're good at them. Yeah. They don't really like them. Yeah. They're good at them and they think, Suffici- well... Sufficiently good at it not to really hate it. Right. And that it pays the bills, but not natu- not good, not necessarily good enough at it, but it doesn't it doesn't gel with them sufficiently that they enjoy it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my kids are only eight and five, so we've only had so many career discussions so far. Well, but I'm interested, but, <laughs> I'm interested even in that. We've had a couple. Yeah. No, but I am interested in that because clearly you will have a philosophy of how you raise your children. Mm. And I'm not looking for personal yeah, details, yeah. but I just like, I just think that you, I bet you think about this. I know that when Mel was pregnant the mm. first time and we were doing the radio together, you would come in every day with a different fact or stat about, you know, where you were up to in the pregnancy and what was going yeah. on and what you'd learnt that day. So I imagine as a parent, you've probably done, are, yeah, are you an instinctive parent or are you a parent who's like, you know, read some information, has a real distinct philosophy of how you think you're going to encourage them to, you know, develop as humans? No, we're, we're, one of the things I'm lucky about with the breakfast radio that I've done all the kids' lives effectively is that whilst you're up really early in the morning, you're here by two in the afternoon. So I, yeah. no, I, I, I paraphrase it as I never take my kids to school. I pick them up almost every day. Right. Now, this afternoon when they finish um, school, I'm over at school taking the chess club that I set up there that both my girls are in and a few of their mates and all that sort of stuff. So having enough time with the kids is not something I have to worry about. I need – I'm more in the camp of, dude, you should probably ease off and let your kids just right. <laughs> play with their mates a bit and don't worry if they've done that extra maths homework that you've asked them to do even though it's not in the classes. Right, So that, but, but I think that that is something you would yeah. have to be careful about. Oh, yeah. Because you I, don't want to be that I, parent. You know. Totally, totally. But we, the one thing I'm, I'm really open with my the elder girl about, Olivia's only five and doesn't really understand it yet, but Ellie and I regularly have conversations yeah. where I say to her, you realise that you're, this is the first time I've ever done this. Uh, and so I don't really know what a dad's meant to do. If you want, why don't you tell me what, what, what do I do really good as a dad and what could I do a bit better? And they're just awesome conversations. What, I mean, totally again, open. Again, I don't need to know no, no, like, no. too much, but do you have some examples of those oh, things? Yeah, because I'd love to. She'll, she'll, say, she'll say, you know, I, I love that you love me and I love that you tell me that you love me and I know, I know how, she said, I know how busy your job is and I know that you always read us a story at night, no matter how tired you are, and that I really, really like that. Mm-hmm. And then she'll say something like, but maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I don't have to play chess every day. Right. <laughs> you are the dummy dockage of chess. <laughs> maybe I could just hang out with my friends a little right. bit or, or, or whatever. And they're, they're beautiful, beautiful conversations. That's interesting, though, because I think that sometimes people wouldn't think of like consulting their child on how... Yeah. How you're doing as a father? Yeah. Well, I get the impression by the time she turns about twelve and a half, no, it'll be about eight years where we won't have those sort of yeah. discussions. You <laughs> might as well get some chats in now. But, but the I mean, the but I- does that terrify you as well? Because oh. you do have two daughters, and without like wanting yeah. to, 
you know, uh, devolve into that cliche. You can have great relationships with mm. kids and then they get to like a part of their life where, you know, they're changing and they're dealing with yeah. how they're changing and for whatever reason dad doesn't get to be involved in some of that. Does that scare you or do you think that's going to be okay? Uh, you know, it's with any of those things. I, you know, you hear the very worst story right. of, of how difficult those things can be and you wouldn't wish those on anyone. And you then meet some people who say, I don't even notice – I right. never noticed they were in their troublesome teenage years. So you don't know. I'm, it's interesting because your parents, and by the nature of you being a kid, your parents project you as just all-seeing, all-knowing. And we all remember those first times when you realise, fuck, my dad doesn't actually know everything in the world. Right. Or remember when you play and you're saying... <laughs> I'm guessing that came earlier for you than it came from <laughs> no, me. No, but you know, but for you, but you say, you know, uh, my, well, my dad will just pick up the world and drop it on your dad. Right. Oh, well, my dad will pick up your dad picking up the world and that sort of stuff. And... and or the first time you realise, wow, I'm at an age now where athletically I could, I could do something better. Oh, yeah, I could beat yeah, him yeah, in I, something. I, if we, like if we actually ran as fast as we could to that tree. Now, Ellie, who's eight and coming on nine, loves swimming. And we, um, I can swim in a way that I'm totally safe and won't drown in the water. Right. And I've done one kilometre ocean swims, but I swim from a – I look like an 85-year-old man who every stroke could be his last. Right. I almost drowned when I was really young in a bath and when I – Learned to swim, just didn't want to put my head in the water at all. Mm. So I swim now entirely arms. Right. I kick if I want, but it doesn't make any difference because my legs are dragging down almost perpendicular. That could have, in a different universe, turned you into a crime-fighting ocean dweller. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, not the case on earth. It just turns me into a guy who will never do a triathlon, even if I was an Olympic cyclist. So Ellie loves swimming. Yep. And the other day, we hopped in a pool and just swam 50 metres. With each other, I said, I said, well, you know, let's have a race. You yeah. know, and she knew what it was, it was, you know. And so she's going as far as she can. And I'm swimming alongside her, just enough to be in front, just enough to be in front, then let her miraculously finish and tap the wall. She doesn't realise how close she was to, <laughs> like, I was, I, I gave her the impression I was putting in 5%. Right. I was probably putting in 60. Yeah. <laughs> If she, she goes to this little swim club a couple of times a week. You, do, if she does, you probably should have taken the victory. If she does, you should have got one in while you still had it left in you. She's about to turn nine. If she keeps practising sometime in the age that she's ten, she'll beat me in a 50-metre yeah. swim. That's interesting. There's no doubt about that at all. I mean, we could keep talking all day, but I don't, um, I don't want to get bogged down in stuff that people can already hear, yeah. and I know that we have to finish up reasonably soon. I want to talk about, and you've touched on the idea of how you're raising your kids, but more broadly than that, something that people might not know about you is how active you are in like that sort of charity world. Mm. Like, and so where did that come from? Where does the idea of like you know wanting to help other people? Where do you get interested in that? Is that something that has been there all your life, or is that something that you develop once you're in the media? Like, where does that come from yeah it, we we never spoke about it actively at home my mum's a very religious woman uh-huh. my dad's absolutely atheist my mum still uh, volunteers for the local church and vincent de paul and all that i'm only aware of her having done that as much as she has now that i'm older i didn't know as a kid and i think she did a lot more of it too once she didn't have to look after and in, us. how were you raised with the religion in a family where one's one and one's the other how, what we how were, was it presented to you we we were religious we sort of knew dad didn't believe but that was never really presented as an option to mm-hmm. us we weren't forced Against our will, but this is one of the things I think is quite insidious. Didn't, sit, didn't sit you down and go, look, do you want to go to hell with dad, exactly, or heaven with mum? But the the thing that's insidious isn't quite the word. But the, the one thing that I don't think religion realizes about itself a lot of the time is that we just believed because mum told us to believe, right? Even though we had a father in the house who didn't believe, and we were told if we ever asked, 
didn't believe, that was not enough to make me ever consider that I couldn't believe. Interesting. Now, if you're in an evangelical family, I can understand you suddenly get to 22 and meet people and go, fuck, you don't believe in God. What? You don't go to church. That's weird. Oh, maybe I, or maybe I should think about that. I had a dad who didn't believe right. in God and never came to church or anything except weddings and funerals. Never once did anything like that. Didn't, you know, he might have come along to my first communion, but never went to church. That wasn't enough to make me think. So if you're brought up in that environment, that's how empowering and, and, and overwhelming that sort of environment is. If you're brought up with a mum who believes in God, you don't want to disappoint her. So I was brought up like that, and I got a scholarship to a Jesuit high school. So it was all into that. But I was an altar boy when I was a kid and like a gun altar boy. When I'd, I'd, I'd retired. I'd moved out at the age of 14 yeah. out of the altar boy thing yeah. and they brought me back. Right. One of the priests had a, a deaconisation or something, which yeah. is like tough. Right. They brought the Spence out of retirement to ring those bells. <laughs> Baby, don't you worry. He's still got one more year left in exactly. him. Exactly. And then we're retiring his cloak. <laughs> exactly. But it was in sort of yeah, my late high school or early university years. I just had a bit of a think about it and I thought, oh, yeah. That doesn't. That's clearly not true. And, Let's and move so, on. but but my little brother is we, still devoutly religious. And so, someone like you who is so logical about at least the world, mm. and you know, believe, you know, is passionate about science and maths, mm. and you know, uh, the exploration of that. How do you then, um, when you're raising your children, present? how the world works to them. Because essentially that's what all these yeah. various methods are trying to answer this one question of when we're young, we, we need to know it makes sense. Yeah. And so we've come up with stories over the years like of how it makes sense. Some of people explain it through religion. Some people explain it through their personal you know, sort of philosophies yeah. or beliefs. Some people explain it through science, but even science, it's like, you know, well, the thing about science yeah. is it's constantly changing and they're constantly discovering things they thought were true for a thousand years aren't true, but now we have better information and mm. this is true. Essentially, all those people looking to do the same thing, which is explain a bit of life. What's yeah. it about? Why are we here? Now, as you get older, I think part of what you realize is we're trying to, you know, find you know, meaning in something that essentially might not have a meaning. Yep. Like, you know, it might only have the meaning that we ascribe to, to yeah. that we give to things. So how do you, when your kid looks at you and says, you know, um, you know explain the world to me, what is going to be your philosophy about how you present that to we, them? We've made a, our, on the topic of God, Mel yep. and I have made it clear to our girls that we don't believe in God. Yep. And, and they, Ellie starts to realise that in about second grade when there's scripture at school. So mm-hmm. some kids go off to scripture and she doesn't. Yep. Uh, and we've explained to her, look, later in your life, mate, you have a good long think about it. You might agree there's a God. That's fine. But I, you know, I, I'm I'm more comfortable with the default position of look. When you're old enough, you make up whatever decision you want on it. Here's what I can't lie to her. Here's what I believe. Right. I haven't told her not to believe in a god. Now, it's really, kind of, it kind of makes a bit more sense that way though, because it's sort of that thing of going, look, if you're an adult and you haven't been indoctrinated, yeah, I feel like when you look at the evidence, <laughs> it's totally up to you. <laughs> I mean, it's totally up to you. you. Have a long hard look at it. But but I tell, I, I was driving her and probably her best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, to something once and from the back of the car without me saying a word and this is before I had told Ellie my position on stuff but scripture had just started at school and so some kids were going to scripture and others weren't and they instantly asked what are you, what's, what are you doing that sort of thing oh scripture's about God oh really what's that about blah, blah, blah. so the conversation literally in the back of the car one of them to the other do you believe in God the other one no I think it's just a story they make up to sort of you know, scare people First one, well, you're kidding. Who, who, who made the world then? What do you mean, who made the world? Well, 
God must have made the world. Why? Well, what was there before the world? Well, there was God. Well, what was there before God? Well, no, there's always been God. That makes just as little sense as who made the world. Well, then do you think we go to heaven when we die or not? Of course we don't go to heaven. That's just a story made up to scare people. Well, then what happens when you die? Well, you just get buried in the ground and work. And literally, in six-year-old language, the same age-old questions that people around the world are blowing each other up for was just wrangled backwards and forwards by these six-year-olds in the back of the car for about five minutes. It was just fascinating to listen to. So then, the argument that would be made by people who do believe, Mm -hmm. they'd be saying, well, without that, Without that in your life, how do you be a good person? What is it that drives you to be a good person? And that brings me again to that mm. idea of that you do some stuff for charity and stuff like that. Where does that come from? You're not doing it because you think if you're a good person, you'll get to go to heaven. No, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, so where does that come from? Oh, well, in, in, a, in a selfish way, it feels great to do. And I, know, I think that's fine, by the way. I think yeah. people always think like, that you're meant to be ashamed of it feeling good to do. I think we should be selling charity more on that point. Like nothing, but you know, I, I MC these events, like for Red Kite. We did their Red Kite quizzes this year, and across all the events they raised pretty much on the dot of a million dollars. And there's people who work incredibly hard at it all year. Yeah. It's not just you know me being there, but I MC'd a couple of those, three of them this year, and they went pretty well. Right. And I'm a crucial cog in a machine that makes a million bucks a year right. for, for families who don't have the – money to deal with the fact that their kids got cancer if you can't feel pretty good about yourself after a night like that then i don't know but i think this is what we say to people all the time yeah for the five dollars it cost you to buy like that even that homeless dude a coffee yeah it feels much better if someone came up to you and goes you can feel pretty good for five bucks yeah you'd be like okay cool exactly actually i've got ten bucks yeah. <laughs> can, I have, can i have two of them yeah. whatever it is oh Hang shutter on. guy, excellent. Anyway, the shutter guy's My here. My security consultant's well, arriving. I mean, I feel like that's enough anyway because we could keep talking all day. So seeing that your shutter guy's here, that seems like a, a good enough uh, way to, to cut off the end. We uh, went longer than Samson. Right, we did go longer. I had so much more to tell. Right, well, we have to cut out that one thing. Nothing <laughs> Nothing happened in his life, did it? That was. So we'll, we'll have you back. There'll be more to tell. <laughs> I, thought, I thought this went really well. If Thank people um, liked it, I didn't tell anyone because it doesn't have a Facebook page or anything yet. So I have all theme music at this stage. Philosophy. If people are enjoying it, you can hit me up on the TOEFOP Facebook page or just uh, download it. Uh, if you download it off iTunes, it's available in other places, Libsyn and stuff as well. But if you download it off iTunes, leave a rating because uh, the first episode was number one on the iTunes charts for really? three weeks or something. So, wow. And that's just because people are rating, rating it, it and, and so that's really nice. So, ah, uh, man, look, you know, if you don't like it, then we'll fucking don't rate it because it's free. Exactly. Come on. Exactly. You made it this far. <laughs> All right. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Adam.